Hi, and welcome to episode six of the Conservation Crossroads podcast. My name is Carla Archibald. And I'm Rachel Friedman. And today... Winter is coming. Game of Thrones or Frozen or Santa Claus. It's about research in Antarctica and the sub-Antarctic islands. Oh, so no polar bears. No, no polar bears, but hopefully some penguins and pectorals if we're lucky. Situated essentially at the end of the earth, Antarctica is not usually front and center in our understanding of research or conservation. Yet it is truly a wilderness area without cities, mining, agriculture, or really any permanent human residence. But Antarctica still does experience some serious threats. Climate change is a big fish in the sea, already contributing to the melting ice sheets and sea level rise over the next century. Invasive species, especially plants and invertebrates, are increasingly a concern, especially as climate change is. And not to mention plastic pollution, which we talked about in our last episode. And since no country actually owns Antarctica, taking action to mitigate these threats is also a problem. Speaking of threats, our triple threat today is Justine, Jazz, and Jez. They are three scientists who have taken on the challenge of researching conservation problems in Antarctica and the sub-Antarctic islands. We first spoke to Dr. Justine Shaw, a longtime Antarctic researcher, about the experience of doing science in the region. Hi, I'm Dr. Justine Shaw. I'm a research fellow from the Center of Biodiversity and Conservation Science. I'm part of the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Queensland in Australia. So I'm a conservation scientist and I particularly focus in terrestrial or land land in Antarctica, so the the animals, the creatures that live on land. So that's mosses and invertebrates, so little tiny springtails and tardigrades. And I'm really interested in what species occur where and why do they occur there? There's species in Antarctica that don't occur anywhere else in the world, and that's really amazing that, that they can survive there. Things like seals and penguins, they go to the ocean in winter, so they leave. But these little guys, these little terrestrial things, they stay there. They can't leave and they can't escape that weather. So they really are amazing creatures. Justine has been researching in Antarctica for over two decades, so we wanted to know what are some of the unique aspects of carrying out research in this part of the world? Being an Antarctic researcher means that you have to be prepared to go away for long periods of time. You can't just jump in a car and drive to your field site for a week or a couple of days or even four, you know, it's it's long um, investments of time. So for long periods of my life, I didn't really have a proper summer because I live in Australia and in summer is when we go go south. So I was going to the cold for five months and then coming back and having an Australian winter. So um, I think if you live in Europe, it's much better because you come back to summer because most of the science happens in Antarctic summer. Um, so you have to be prepared to be away from home for a long time, long periods of time. You're travelling on boats predominantly. Some people these days can fly into the Antarctic depending on where they work. Um, but, you, but even with flight, flights in, it's um, weather dependent. And as you know, as you can imagine, the weather in Antarctica is fairly um, drastic and can ground aeroplanes or trap boats in sea ice. So the schedules of shipping and planes is always changing. So you can never plan, um, you'd never want to plan a wedding to come back to on time with, with, without a couple of months leeway. 
for me, I've spent most of my time in the subantarctic islands, which, um, and I've been to lots of the subantarctic islands, and they are just crawling with thousands and thousands of penguins and seals and seabirds. So the, the sound and the intensity of the smell of being on those islands is really incredible. You feel very mortal and insignificant when you're standing on the edge of a colony of a million royal penguins. There's, amazing, there's so many amazing things that shape you about your experience, but for me, things like... Um, sitting on the water in a small zodiac, like a little rubber duck boat, and having a killer whale come up beside the boat and its dorsal fin being taller than me sitting in the boat, um, watching watching the southern lights, watching auroras over the beach at night when you've gone down to go to the toilet and you've just innocently gone out to have a wee at night and um, there's a massive aurora uh, australis in front of you with the green the light and lights flickering around and then you can hear the petrels calling and the seals barking on the beach. That's pretty amazing. And when you're doing your field work, that, that's pretty much often your every day. So that's a pretty amazing thing to experience. As conservation scientists, if we do field work, it's often in remote or unusual places. For my research, I've gone off to Madagascar, Ghana and Indonesia, and those seem pretty adventurous at the time. Yeah, and I've worked in pretty remote places in Australia and in Peru. But listening to Justine, Antarctica just seems like a whole different planet and presents its own unique conservation challenges and opportunities for research. So Antarctica is still an unknown frontier to science. We're still discovering new species in Antarctica. We're still discovering that there's lakes and rivers running under the ice. We're still understanding what species have been on Antarctica and what species are there now. So the more research we do in Antarctica, the more new species we're finding, and most of these species don't occur anywhere else on Earth, so they really are important and worthy of protection. One of the important things to remember about Antarctica is it's a really huge continent and it is mostly ice and, and, and snow, but there's tiny portions of it that are ice-free. On those ice-free parts of Antarctica is where everything lives. It's where all the biodiversity congregates because they can't live on snow and ice. It's the penguins, it's the snow petrels, it's the moss, it's the invertebrates. Those areas are changing due to climate change and they're changing rapidly. Climate change is impacting on Antarctica and we really need to understand that and we really need to act globally because we are impacting on Antarctica. While Antarctica conjures up images of harsh, snowy landscapes, the areas of biodiversity conservation value are really relegated to limited snow-free terrestrial surfaces. Jasmine Lee is a PhD student from the University of Queensland, CSIRO, and the Australian Antarctic Division. Her research focuses on these ice-free areas in Antarctica. How you probably mostly imagine Antarctica is this mass of snow and ice and glaciers with maybe a penguin or two. But what you might not know is that this is not suitable habitat for terrestrial biodiversity. Most Antarctic terrestrial biodiversity, over 99% in fact, survives in small patches of permanently ice-free area. So the Antarctic continent is over 14 million kilometres squared, which is about twice the size of Australia when you include the sea ice. But less than 1% of this is permanently ice-free. It kind of forms these small patches of suitable habitat, like islands in a sea of ice. However, with climate change, as you might expect, the ice is going to start melting and the thin ice that's around ice-free areas can melt and cause an expansion of ice-free areas. So we did some modelling with some climate projections from the IPCC and we found that 
ice free areas in Antarctica could expand by over 17,000 kilometers squared by the end of the century. Most of this expansion would be in the Antarctic Peninsula, which is also the region that has been highlighted as most at risk from invasive species. So in the Antarctic Peninsula, if we were to see 14,000 kilometers squared of new ice free area, this would actually triple the amount of ice free area that's there today. And so the patches expand so much in size that many of them join together. So it kind of increases connectivity and decreases fragmentation, which is a bit opposite to the rest of the world when we think about climate change. What will this mean for biodiversity? Well, of course, your first thought is that this is probably good, right? Like extra habitat, more room for biodiversity. And in some ways, yes, it probably is good. It'll provide new opportunities for the native species to expand and perhaps increase gene flow. However, the, some of the issues are is that many of these species have been isolated for a very long time. In some cases, tens of thousands to even millions of years. So they've kind of evolved to deal with abiotic factors. So a lack of water or sunlight and you know, low temperatures. So when we increase all of these things and they start to move around, then we're not really sure how they're gonna cope with competition. Uh, the major problem will be that as the climate warms, it'll be more conducive to invasive species and non-native species establishing. So they'll also be able to use the increase in connectivity to move about and potentially compete with native species for space and resources. Jasmine just got back from a scientific expedition to Antarctica trying to fill in some of these knowledge gaps she mentioned before. We were curious what a typical day is like on one of these expedition trips, so we asked Jasmine to tell us. So the average day in the life of an Antarctic expeditioner varies depending on where they are. So if you were at an Antarctic station, you're based on land, so you would spend your day in winter, probably inside 99% of the time. But in summer, you get out and do all the science programs. So we've got lots of penguin researchers and ice corers and people studying all aspects of Antarctica, including social scientists that try and look at the impacts of people living in close quarters for long extended periods of time. Um, the day on the life of a ship is quite different. So I was fortunate enough to go down last summer and spend two months on the ship. Uh, my average day looked like I'd get up relatively early because it gets really light in Antarctica, so maybe 4am, get up, go to the gym, watch some birds because I was there for a bird watching project. We'd have breakfast in the mess hall. Basically your life on the ship is regulated by food. So food is, comes at 7.30 in the morning, 11.30 for lunch, 4.30 for afternoon tea, and then 7.30 for dinner again. So your day was basically planned around food. Uh, following breakfast, we'd normally go back up, do some more bird transects. Perhaps I would then go down, try and fit in a little bit of PhD work, have lunch, uh, more science. We, it was we would do it was a scientific cruise, so we often stopped to do marine stations. So I'd help put out the nets to look for microplastics in the food web, and then we'd perhaps have a nap. We'd have heli deck boot camp, and dinner would follow that. So. It's not all about icebreakers, or ice walls and white walkers. There are also a bunch of subantarctic islands that are greener and more habitable. Here we have Jeremy Bird. Yep, his name's Bird, and he happens to be doing his PhD on birds. Jez researches one of Australia's subantarctic islands. He's down in Tasmania at the moment, getting ready for his field trip to Macquarie Island. We gave Jez a call to talk about his research. Hi, yeah, so I'm Jez Bird. I'm a PhD student at the University of Queensland. I'm studying seabird recovery on Macquarie Island. 
So we hear that Macquarie Island has a bit of an invasive species problem. Can you first tell us a bit about which invasive species are or were on Macquarie Island? Yeah, so there's no problem now, luckily, but uh, they've, they've been a big problem in the past. Um, way back since the 1800s, people have introduced uh, first cats, uh, rabbits, rats, mice, um, and weckers were uh, introduced bird from New Zealand. And what endemic species did they pose a threat to? So I focus on, on birds and in terms of birds living at Macquarie, um, there's an endemic seabird called Macquarie Shag um, and historically there was a parakeet that lived on the island um, but that uh, yeah, had a swift demise in the late 1800s and yeah, over sort of 15 year periods um, because of cats uh, disappeared. Yeah, so there's no way back for that one. Sort of a sub question to that: Is it because of the bird nesting, or what? What sort of puts them in such danger from some of these land, like sort of terrestrial mammals? Yeah, so uh, oceanic islands are uh, sort of amazing oases for a lot of marine species that have to return to land to breed, um, and because, well, because of their ecology, these species have. Uh, sort of focused on areas away from mammalian predators. So historically, these islands were great. Things would be nesting on the ground. Um, and But yeah, there, there are traits that make them very susceptible to predation once mammals have been introduced by humans. And so when did the Macquarie Island Pest Eradication Project start? I mean, really, you can trace it back to kind of the 70s and 80s when people first started looking in earnest at native species and realizing there was a problem from invasives. Um, and so integrated pest management began back then. Weckers were eradicated by the late 1980s, uh, then cats um, in 2000. Um, and then subsequent to that, there's been, yeah, the Macquarie Island Pest Eradication Program, uh, focusing on eradication of rabbits, rats and mice, which took place between 2011 and 2014. And what are you specifically working on on your PhD? Well, so while there was a huge investment in the eradication itself, um, there's sort of much less uh, effort gone into monitoring so far and really sort of confirming the success and the outcomes from the program. Um, so although we're confident uh, that the invasive species are gone, we don't really know how native species are responding. Uh, so my project's looking particularly at a group of seabirds called petrels, which were some of the hardest hit species. Uh, so I'm, yeah, hopefully going to be monitoring their recovery. Wait, so, so you're just about to head off to Macquarie Island. What is what's sort of your plan there in this first uh, first go of fieldwork? Yeah, I'm excited. So um, I'm heading down for the start of the summer season. I'm going to be there throughout the summer, um, possibly staying on into the winter. But um, yeah, so it's, it's really looking at, through the seasons how petrels are, are recovering. Um, so looking at numbers and breeding success. Um, so one of the big things I'm trying to do is acoustic recording. Uh, so petrels, are, they nest in holes underground and they're very difficult to survey because of that. So if 
finding their holes and then finding out what's in them is a real challenge. So if you can use recorders to monitor vocal activity, uh, it's sort of a shortcut for working out where on the island they're living and how many are in each location. I just did a tweet about like, all the stuff that the Antarctic Division gave me to go down there is like my safety equipment. And then all the stuff that I got ready to go down there was like gin and books. And it's like my sanity equipment. Yeah. Right. Well, it sounds like Jez might be going to another planet if you ask me. Well, both conservation and research in the Antarctic require special considerations. At least there are no ice dragons. That's true. Well, if you want to keep in contact with the podcast team or you want to suggest episodes, please send us tweets using the hashtag Conservation Crossroads. And we'll also put all of the links, the researchers and the projects in the episode's description. We look forward to tackling the next big issues in conservation with you and we will be exploring paths forward from this conservation crossroads. 